Okay, so today's reading is from Romans chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 14 to 33, and you can find that on page 1142 of uh, your Bibles. So that's Romans 15, 14 to 33. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace of God gave me to be a minister of Christ, to, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It, always, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task, and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure and the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to them may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me add my welcome to Adams. Um, it is uh, truly a joy and privilege for us to gather um, like this week by week and to hear from God. Uh, let me pray as we come to his word. Our living God, we are absolutely grateful that you speak, uh, that you speak to us. And we pray that you would give us hearts um, that are soft and responsive, ears that will hear, uh, that by your word uh, you will change us, you will stir up faith in our hearts um, and lead us uh, to faithfulness and obedience. Meet with us tonight, this afternoon. Um, and work among us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. 
I don't know if you're much of a sports fan. Um, I'm probably about, about halfway. I'm not a major sports fan, but I do follow some sports. The one thing I have picked up is that great teams truly radiate confidence. They very obviously have a deep commitment to one another, and they have real passion as they labor together for whatever goal they're after. If you've ever experienced it, if you've ever been part of a really good team, you will know how amazing that feeling is. But even as fans of sports teams, you know how good it is. That, that passion that they have is so contagious, you get wrapped up in it. It exerts a powerful pull on us. So take some of those really great sports teams. You know, World Cup winners, enduringly great performers. Um, I uh, could think of the Australian cricket team under Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting, the great Barcelona football team under uh, Carl's Puyol, the All Blacks under Richie McCaw, who won back-to-back -back World Cups. I mean, they've done some really, really impressive things. And when you look at that, those teams, they weren't just driven, they were so committed to one another. They were really passionate about what they were after, and so they were willing to break their backs in training together to make sure they accomplished their goals. You could observe in their friendships real camaraderie, their struggle side by side. And you can picture them in 30 years' time, sitting in a pub somewhere, having a drink, and reminiscing over their glory days. Um, there, there is something really um, attractive and enjoyable about watching the friendships around those teams. And I think even as fans, when you're watching them in full flow, you could be sitting in a pub with absolute strangers and in that moment be best friends with them because you are thoroughly wrapped up in your passion and your desire for that team to do well. But let me give you a counterpoint. Uh, when Australian cricket was at the height of its glory, they were pitted against a world 11. Now, man for man, on skill, they were as good as, at least as good as, if not better than, in some cases, the Aussies. But do you know how the matches played out? They were thoroughly one-sided. It was a no contest. The Aussies completely smashed that world 11, again and again and again. Putting a group of individually great athletes together doesn't make a great team. It turns out that the shared desire, the commitment to one another, working side by side again and again and again, really makes a big difference. Well, that's going to come to play as we get into our text. It doesn't look on the surface like it's anything about that, but I'll try and persuade you that it is. We are picking up the thread in what is the conclusion to a pretty long letter. A Paul, who had been called and sent by Jesus, is writing this so that the church in Rome would live in line with the peace and reconciliation that they have in Jesus. And here, at the end of the letter, he's giving us a little bit more insight into his ministry, uh, the, the things that he was called to, and the reason that he wants Christians of Jewish and Gentile backgrounds to just get along, to accept one another. And the reason is that they would wholeheartedly join him 
in his task, in his mission. And our focus is the prayer at the end of the chapter, those last four verses. Uh, but we have to um, make our way there slowly. We first have to see Paul's heart for gospel ministry and then hear his call to gospel partnership before we can make sense of that prayer. So first, his heart for gospel ministry. See, Paul is a servant of Jesus. He's been called by Jesus, he's been sent by him, and he's been sent to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are just anybody who doesn't have Jewish heritage. See, in the Old Testament, we discover that the Jews were the one family, the one ethnic group that God had chosen. Through them, God would intervene in human history. Through them, he would bless the world. He would bless them so that they would be a blessing to others. God's intent has always been for people from every nation, from every family, to worship him. And he would work through this one family to accomplish that goal. Now, the high point of God's work through this family comes in Jesus' ministry. And that same Jesus is the Jesus who called and sent Paul to be a messenger, to proclaim the rescue and blessing that there is in Jesus to people of every ethnicity all over the world. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 16. He says, God gave me grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified, that's made holy by the Holy Spirit. See, in Jewish religion, priests were the middlemen between God, who was holy, and the people, who were sinful. They would offer sacrifices as purification for sins, so that God could live among his people without breaking out against them. But Jesus comes along as the final sacrifice sent by God. His death is a sacrifice that deals with sin decisively. The priests had to offer sacrifices year after year, again and again. Jesus comes as a sacrifice. He dies once for all in a way that never needs to be repeated. He deals with the problem of sin and offers new life, reconciliation to God. And so if we rely on Jesus' right standing before God, rather than our own ability or merit, God restores us to right relationship with himself. We are no longer alienated, his enemies. We no longer stand under God's fair judgment. By faith, we share in Jesus through God's Spirit. Pause there for a second. That's a very brief summary of the amazing work God has done in Jesus. There are a thousand different ways you can express that. There's so much depth that we can go into. But don't let its briefness be glossed over. That is the biggest news. That's the ministry that Paul is called to. 
Our biggest problem, our sin, our rebellion against God, that's what lies behind our pain, our frustration, the dissatisfaction we often experience in life. And the God who lives, the God who made all that we see, he cares. God is for us. This is a really big deal. He has intervened in human history. And Paul, Paul has been sent to proclaim that message so that people like us would hear it and believe, so that people like us would be made acceptable before God, cleansed and empowered by God's Spirit to live in a way that pleases him. Now that's the basic truth that controls everything that Paul has done up to this point in his life. His service to God is what matters. His mission to proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles. And so that's exactly what Paul did. He went and he spoke. And in all of the places that he spoke about Jesus, Gentiles came to faith and obedience. And, and the, way, the way Paul puts it um, is, is slightly dramatic. You know, he says, all the way from Jerusalem, uh, through Syria and what is modern-day Turkey, into Greece and north of Greece to Albania, right across those regions, I have proclaimed the message about Jesus. And everywhere I've, pro I've been, people have heard it and believed. It's remarkable what God accomplished through Paul's ministry in just a few years. That's in verse 19. And you see what he adds there in verse 19, that he has fully proclaimed the gospel in these regions. He's not saying that um, every single person has heard the message, but that faithful communities have been established in major centers. And he expects them to do what he's been doing, to tell others the message of God in Jesus. And he expects the gospel, therefore, to go out to the outlying areas. That's Paul's ministry. And the thing that's driven him is that incredible message of God's work in Jesus. His love for Jesus and his boldness in speaking about Jesus is right at the heart of his ministry. God is forming a new society in Christ. He's turning enemies to friends. He's restoring broken people. He's purifying the unclean. And he's doing it through the proclamation of the gospel. It's ordinary people talking and pointing to Jesus. And you notice what Paul's ambition is in all this. He says in verse 20, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. He has such great compassion for those who are still alienated from God. He longs for them to turn from sinful rebellion with all of its bitter fruit, quarreling, jealousy, immorality, fear and hopelessness. He longs for them to turn 
from that sort of rebellion with its bitter fruit to the fruit of new life in Jesus. Love, self-control, generosity, the hope of lasting joy. He's not expressing a personal ambition here, his 10-year plan for his life. He's expressing gospel ambition. This is God's desire for lost and suffering people. God's mission in the world has so captivated Paul that it has become his deepest desire. It's truly remarkable that God loves people, that he would look on creatures like us and have compassion, that he would care enough to enter the world, enough to suffer to the point of death so that he would win us over. And God has not just acted and then disappeared off the scene. He's still acting. He loves and he continues to love without restraint. In his kindness, he has chosen to include people like us, despite our weakness, with all of our failures, in the work that he's doing. Paul is completely won over by that. He is fully committed to the task that he's been given. He loves the way Jesus has loved him. And he's sharing that with us so that we catch the same desire. As we enjoy all that we have in Jesus, it ought to be growing our compassion for others, our zeal to speak of Christ so that Christ would be known. While Paul first looks back on his ministry, then he looks forward. Look, look what he points out from verse 23. He says, now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and that you'll assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a little while. He, he genuinely longs to meet the Romans, to enjoy their company. But do you see what's driving him? what's keeping him going in that direction? In one sense, Rome is just a pit stop. His destination is Spain. Why Spain? Because it's further west and no one has yet taken the gospel there. The same uh, desire, that same ambition to preach the gospel where Christ isn't known is continuing to drive him. He says, while there's enough communities established here, the gospel will continue to go out. I must keep going to where Christ has not been heard. He wants to see people reconciled to God. He wants to see people enjoying him and obeying him. He's looked back and he's looked forward. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Usain Bolt. He's widely regarded as the greatest sprinter of all time. Um, he's the record holder uh, of a great many beautiful records. In an interview, this is what he said the one time. 
Everybody says winning's easy for me. I'm like, why would you say that? Yes, it looks easy, but it's not. There's a lot of work and dedication. It's rough. I want people to understand that what they see on the track is because I work so hard to get there. Paul's ministry is a little bit like that as well. He works really hard. He labors because he's driven by a desire to accomplish the mission that God has set him, to make Christ known. The passion drives him so much that he's willing to bear the cost. He's, well, he's willing to sweat and bleed to make sure that it happens. Well, that kind of gospel-mindedness leads to gospel partnership. Paul shares his heart, his God-given desire, so that we would catch that same desire. And desire moves us to action. And that's why Paul follows up what he's just shared with a call to partnership. It's not surprising to discover that Usain Bolt had a whole team of close family members and trusted old friends who took care of every single thing that he did. It might look like a solo sport, but it's not. There was a whole team of people sharing the same desire for him to do well, to accomplish all that he had the potential to. And so they labored together. They were as committed as Bolt was. It cost them too for him to win all those medals. Take a look at verse 24 again. Paul says he's going to pass through Rome on the way to Spain, and he hopes that the church in Rome will assist him on his journey there. He's not just telling them that he's passing through and he's going to stop over. He's saying, I'm passing through, and I want you to participate with me in what I'm doing. He's expecting their desire to make Christ known to overflow in active participation with him. And in this passage, that, that takes two forms. Uh, first, it's by offering material support, giving him a place to sleep, supplying him with uh, supplies for the journey, giving him money for things that are needed. And the second way is through prayer. Material support and prayer. Well, first look at the material support that he's calling them to in, in the text. He said that he wants the Romans to assist him in that mission to Spain. And then he does a surprising thing. He shares what he's actually doing at that moment. He's on his way to Jerusalem, which is in exactly the opposite direction. You would have thought that if he's so captivated by this desire, if he's so passionate, that he would make a beeline for Rome and then get on to Spain as quickly as possible. He doesn't. He does exactly the opposite. He's moving to Jerusalem. And the reason is because the churches in Greece had raised a, a collection and they'd asked Paul to take it to Jerusalem. The reason is that there were Christians in Jerusalem who were struggling. They were in great poverty. Now, we're not sure why. We just know that they were in great need. 
the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia hear about this and joyfully and generously they share what they have. Now we know from 2 Corinthians that they did not have very much. They had little and yet they gave of what they had anyway with great joy and generosity. Well here Paul is explaining why they did it. In verse 27 he says these churches, these churches owed it to the church in Jerusalem. That's a strange thing to say. But what he means is that salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's not a reason for them to be boastful or arrogant. Instead, the fact that they have received salvation is a sign of God's generosity. Out of that generosity, they have become sharers together with the Jews in all of the blessings and promises that God had made to the Jews. And so Paul sees this offering of the Gentile churches as a humble show of their gratitude. It's a picture of how interdependent Christians are, how we are united to Jesus and then to one another. And so it works itself out quite naturally in a practical care, in helping with each other's needs. Why is Paul going into all of this? Because he's saying, just as those churches are sharing each other's burdens, the Greek churches helping the Jerusalem church, I want you to help me. We are participants together in the ministry that God has entrusted to us. The love we show for those who share the gospel with us is to be mirrored by a zeal for those who do not yet know the gospel, those who haven't heard it or believed. Now Paul is saying, look at their love and partnership. I want you to do the same. Love each other and help me on my way to Spain so that people who have never heard would be able to share in the same hope and joy that you have in Jesus. A heart for gospel ministry leads to gospel partnership. That's not just through material support, it includes prayer. And that's the reason in verse 30, Paul also says to them, pray with me. Now, it's been a long way to get here, but we have got here. And when you read that prayer from verse 30, those last few verses, you'll notice that it's a very particular prayer. It's an odd one for us to be reflecting on, in the sense that Paul is making very specific requests about a very specific trip. And yet the gospel partnership that it is modeling to us is exactly the same kind of partnership that we are called to. And so if we are persuaded about the gospel of Jesus, about how precious and valuable it is, if we are enjoying Jesus through it, if we are convicted about the call he is giving us to, about the call he is giving us, then there is something for us to learn about how to pray. So let's dwell on that prayer. First, in verse 30, he just urges them to pray. It seems fairly obvious, doesn't it? 
He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. They're part of the same family. They're on the same team. He's saying, we're in this together, so help me. But you see how he's also appealing to our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to them, if you truly confess Jesus as God's king, if he's the master of your lives, then in his name, pray for me. If you're participating in the salvation that he has won for you, if you submit to him as the one who has taught us how to pray, if you've tasted fellowship with him, if you long to see his kingdom extended, then pray for me and my ministry. It's the most natural consequence. And he also appeals to the love of the Spirit. Now that's a love that the Spirit of God fills us with and empowers us with. If you know that love, he's saying, well then show it by praying for me. Or another way to put it is this. If the Spirit of God is working in you, then how can you possibly not love? And if you love, then how can you not pray? It is the natural overflow of tasting the blessings of the gospel. Help me. We are partners together in this. And then he talks about his struggle. He says, strive together with me in prayer. Now, I think that what he's suggesting here is that his ministry is a struggle, rather than prayer itself being a struggle. And that's because it's hard work. It's tireless work. And he has again and again faced great opposition. There's been nothing easy about the task God has called him to. And so it's a call for them to be sharing that burden with him, to be lightening the load so that he is not suffering and bearing all of this hardship on his own. The reliance that we're, we're called to hear in God, of course, is reminding us that this is God's work from start to finish. He's the one who sent Paul, and he's the one who calls us to speak of Christ. He's the one who wins people's hearts. He's the one who accomplished our salvation through Jesus. He's the one who draws us and draws other people into his kingdom. And so we cry to him and we say, God, use us. And God, will you change people's hearts? Will you bring them to yourself? It's an invitation for these Roman Christians and for us to pray with the same sort of persistence and diligence and commitment that Paul models again and again. So pray, pray. Well, what about the content of the prayer then? What does he want us to pray about? Well, I think he's calling us to pray for gospel ministry. Let me try and persuade you briefly. The first thing he asks for, beginning of verse 31, 
Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. Now, Paul knew that there were strong opponents to the gospel in Jerusalem. There were some unconverted Jews that saw Paul as a traitor who was undermining their religion. A Jewish identity was tied to social and religious markers, things that set them apart as ritually clean. And here was Paul trying to foster a new community of both Jews and Gentiles, breaking down those strict boundaries. Throughout his travels, it was often such people who had caused him the most trouble. He knows that going to Jerusalem was dangerous. They would scheme for his downfall and perhaps even his death. And so he says to the Romans, pray that I would be kept safe. Why? Why pray for protection and deliverance? Not just because he wanted to live a little bit longer for his own benefit. I hope you've seen from the priorities we've looked at that the reason he's asking for that is so that he can continue his mission, so that he can proclaim Christ where Christ is not known. Well, the second thing he asks for then, still in verse 31, is that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Why is it that the gift he's bringing might cause offense among believers? Well, it could have been difficult for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to accept the offering, not just because it's hard to receive gifts from a position of need and dependence, but because to receive the gift would be to endorse Paul and the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming. It would be to recognize the Gentiles as full members among the people of God. And if you were a Jewish person, that was a hard thing to do unless you were thoroughly persuaded about the gospel of Jesus. There was a lot at stake because if they rejected the gift, they would be denying the gospel at a fundamental level. They would be denying what Jesus had accomplished. And they may have irreparably widened the rift with the Gentiles. It's a reason he says in verse 33, the God of peace be with you all. He's emphasizing the peace we have in Christ because of the tensions between Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem. And those same tensions were being mirrored in the church in Rome. So what Paul is really asking for here is for the gospel to be affirmed. Pray that they would accept the gift favorably so that the gospel would be affirmed. Because if it is, if, if the Gentiles are fully accepted, then we will together share the desire for God to be made known in Jesus. It would strengthen the church so that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed. That's the reason he's praying for believers to accept the gift and for unbelievers not to be able to stop it. The third thing he prays for, verse 32, so that I may come to you. He wants to visit Rome. Now he's expressing real love for the Romans here. He wants to experience the joy and encouragement of being with them and serving them. Nevertheless, his visit is with a view to further ministry beyond Rome. 
So I, I hope you're seeing that even though these are quite particular requests, they are all with the end of the gospel being proclaimed where people haven't yet heard it. And so we're not going to pray for Paul. We're not going to pray for this specific trip to Jerusalem. But we are called to the same kind of partnership that would make this sort of a prayer fairly typical. You can pray that at Trinity Church, we would consistently and courageously preach Christ from the scriptures. You can pray that we would express the peace and reconciliation that Christ has achieved for us so that out of a shared desire to make him known, we would tirelessly labor side by side. You can pray that unbelievers would not be able to stop us from proclaiming this gospel. Jeremy was at a conference earlier this week representing churches who stand for the biblical gospel. It's going to be costly and painful for us to stand firmly in the coming months. Pray that we would. Pray that we would be faithful. And pray for Christians in other places. If you haven't been around for long, you may not know that Trinity Church is invested in the ministry of others. We actively support mission partners in, in Brussels, in Johannesburg, even in England. Now, those relationships didn't pop out of nowhere. They're built on friendships that developed over the years. There's real trust. There's real love. We pray for them. We offer them material support. We send them money. We offer them time. We, we give of our own time to serve alongside them. So you can pray. You can pray that we would continue these partnerships. You can pray for them. And let me also encourage you to get to know them if you don't. Find out who they are and where they are. Go and visit them. Because knowing them and their situations, knowing their ministry, will allow you and the rest of us to truly encourage them, to pray for them with awareness of their particular struggles. Well, as we end, notice how Paul's desire to submit. Let me rephrase that. Notice how Paul's desire submits to God's desire. He asks them to pray, in verse 32, by God's will. These are not ideas that have just popped into Paul's head. He's driven by God's desire and his desire is falling in line. That's Christian prayer. We align our wills to what God wants. We aren't trying to bend his will to ours. How did God answer these prayers that Paul's asked about? Well, the first request that he would be kept safe was kind of a yes and a no. He was rescued from harm, and a plot to kill him. But then he was arrested, tried, and imprisoned. The second prayer, that the gift would be accepted? We're not sure, 
but from the evidence we have, it most likely was positively received. The third request, that he'd get to Rome? Well, yes, he did get to Rome, but not when or how he expected. He only made it there three years later and as a prisoner. We have no idea whether he ever made it as far as Spain. God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we might expect. But the more that God desires to, the more that God's desires become our desires and shape our desires, the more we will be praying for what he wants for the world and what he wants for us. We can be confident that God will work out his purposes and he's chosen to use our prayers to bring that about. Yet it is through that act of prayer, as we express dependence on him, as individuals and as a church, that he supplies grace to us in our need and draws us deeper into fellowship with himself. What does any of this have to do with great teams? Great teams hook us with their passion. It's attractive and it's contagious. They are deeply committed to one another. They labor together with shared passion. We have the best and the biggest news. It does not compare. The more you are persuaded by that, the more you will love people and the more you will pray. We will truly be able to labor side by side, working for the task that God has entrusted us with. Having our desires shaped by God's means that we have a heart for gospel ministry, speaking about Jesus. That's worked out in partnership with other Christians, loving and supporting others so that Jesus is proclaimed. Our Father, we pray that you would give us such a desire, that you would work that out amongst us. Empower us to labor side by side, driven by a love for Jesus and a love for people. Help us to speak of Christ and help us to help others speak of Christ. Amen.